Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Welcome to Spirit of Adoption Radio, where we soar above all the darkness of this world and see things in the light of God's eternal perspective. Now, here's your hosts, Kevin and Tabitha Lavelle. Shalom. We're so thankful and blessed that you would choose to join us today for episode number 98 of Spirit of Adoption Radio. I'm Kevin, and with me as always is my dear wife, Tabitha. How are you today, Svia? I'm very sober listening to this song. Mm -hmm. His job keeps getting easier. Wow. Hopefully not because of us. No. We need to be making it harder. (laughs) That's right. Amen. Wow. And we make it harder as we walk in the truth, yes. speak the truth in love, no compromise. Mm, yes. Right? That's what I think about when I think of Brother Keith. No compromise. No compromise. Mm, amen. If you don't compromise, then it makes it hard on the enemy. That's right. Right? Yes. He wants us to compromise. Yeah. And if you think about it, how his job was getting easier as people start sort of blurring these distinctions between truth and lies and, Mm. you know, mixing in all of this wickedness into things. And it's like, okay, nobody even believes me anymore because I'm just fading in with everything else, you know? That's right. And if you think that that was happening back in Keith Green's day, Mm. how much more is it happening now? Right. Yeah. Today, we want to talk about one of the tricks that the serpent of old is deceiving many people with, including, unbelievably, some in the church. Yeah. So we actually just this week encountered this once again. Yeah. By a, quote, ministry, end quote, promoting yoga. Right. So years ago, we actually knew of a ministry um, that was into a lot of good health resources, helping people to heal naturally from different types of diseases and health problems, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, did a lot of good. Oh, yeah. But then they started getting into yoga. It's so sad. And they call it Christian yoga. Yeah, and I mean, I think it did take a keen eye of understanding what this is for me to see through it because it wasn't being presented as yoga. It wasn't being called yoga when I ran into it this week, which was the even more deceitful thing where they were doing yoga, 
poses. They were calling the poses the names of the poses in yoga because I know from coming from my background, I used to be involved in yoga. And this was before I was a believer. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of opening myself up to like the spiritual stuff, the drum circles and some real, you know, crazy stuff. Eastern spirituality. Eastern spirituality. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. totally. And some of my friends and everything were very deeply, heavily into yoga. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing yoga. I was practicing yoga before I was born again. Mm -hmm. So I know the name of the poses from yoga. And I know those names and I know they were being transferred over and slapped some worship music on to the same name, the same pose. The woman said, okay, let's go down and do the cat pose. Mm -hmm. Let's do the downward dog. Okay. These are yoga poses. And you think, oh, I'm just, I'm just stretching my back like a cat right now. Yeah. Let's do the cobra pose. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because that's one of them. It's It's one thing to uh, see this in the world. You know, when, when you don't know the Lord, right? right? I mean, I understand. Right. I understand that. When I was lost, I did lost things. Yeah. Right? Me too. But when you're found, you shouldn't practice lost things. No. Old things pass away. Mm-hmm. All things become new. Right. Second Corinthians 11.3 says, Paul says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's what I see happening with yoga. Mm, I see Christians that are being seduced through this craftiness and their minds are being corrupted from the simplicity. The word simplicity there means purity. It's like single-threaded versus multi-threaded. So you're not entangled with anything that's impure. Mm. It's a single thread of purity. Yeah, that's beautiful. So That's what the Lord says. He doesn't want us to be corrupted from that. Yeah. We are to test all things and hold on to what is good. Yeah. We're not to just embrace things. We're to test it according to the Bible. Mm. And I'll tell you what, Jesus didn't practice yoga. No, he didn't. He didn't didn't tell us to practice yoga in in order to communicate with him, in order to have intimacy with him. No way. So I should be able to test it according to the word, find out where it's coming from Mm -hmm. and reject it. Yeah. Well, and I'm really glad, I'm really thankful for you to encourage me to do that personally, to test things, because we we already have known about yoga and that we don't want anything to do with yoga, and we don't want it creeping in any kind of way into our lives at all, um, or any of the philosophies behind it. But um, this was presented to me as a specific walking exercise that was going to be done for a certain amount of time. And this was a certain um, ministry that was promoting this walk and all these different things that I was thinking of participating in. In fact, I had gotten to the point where I sent my little donation to um, participate in this walk. And then um, I was going to invite someone else. And Kevin said, no, before you do that, I want you to look into them a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure before we promote anything and before you start this, that you look into it a little bit deeper and look into who they are, where where did this come from, you know, and Mm -hmm. and let's do a little research. And as soon as I did research, it was on the front page of their website. I just hadn't gone there yet. I just went to the little link I was given. But when I went to the front of their website, I was like, oh, they are doing yoga just blatantly right on the front page of their website. Page mm-hmm. one of the website is promoting yoga. 
And so I was, I was really kind of shocked, you know, but I just have to realize the days that we're living in. Right. So today we want to play something very special from a very special sister uh, in the Lord. She's gone to be with the Lord, but we actually already introduced you to her, Carol Matriciana, uh, in episode number 72. And she came out of yoga. She came, she lived in India. Okay. She grew up there. Yes. So she actually made an expose called Yoga Uncoiled. And this isn't what we're going to play here. We're going to play an interview of hers. But the movie Yoga Uncoiled is something everybody needs to get. Yes. And you'll get the best information about this subject. And we use it actually to hand out to others. We've given it out at yoga studios. Yes. Right? Yes. And we've sent it to people that are involved in this to Mm -hmm. help them. Yeah. So- Hopefully after this, um, everyone can look that up and get that DVD. Um, but we're going to play this really important interview right now, and it's going to be a blessing. It's going to be a sharpening time, okay, an equipping time to help us, to help others who are getting seduced into this. Amen. Amen? Yes. Tell us about your background in India growing up with real yoga. I was so privileged to be born fifth generation in India. My father went out in military service and my grandparents before him and all sorts of different aspects of British military colonialization. And so, I, honestly, India is my home. I love the Indian people, the Indian culture. I just love everything about it. But without a doubt, the very fundamental essence of Hinduism, which is the religion of India, is yoga. I mean, there's no yoga without Hinduism, and there's basically no Hinduism without yoga. And a true yogi, one who practices yoga, will tell you that it's intrinsically entwined in the spiritual life of India. You know, a lot of people don't realize that there are lots of religions in India. I mean, when I grew up, I had Muslim friends and I had Christian friends Mm -hmm. and there are Buddhists and Hindus. So all religions are available in various different percentages in India. And interestingly enough, the Christian culture there has also involved some of the mystic aspects, the sort of idea that there is a type of syncretism that we can learn from all religions. So I think the fundamental thing with Hinduism is that it's very syncretistic. Mm -hmm. It's that all things, all paths lead to God. We are all deity. I mean, in Hinduism, there are over 330 million gods. Growing up in India, I was very aware of the deity or the divinity of everything in the sense of that trees had to be respected as divine and there were rat temples there. And, you know, here in the West, we look at the rat as a sort of little rabid poisonous creature. But there, there are actually temples for the rats. Cow, of course, is considered sacred. Uh, The monkey is considered sacred. There are monkey temples. So, There is a huge respect of life, and the idea at the very concept of yoga and Hinduism is that we are all sacred, we're all innately divine in the sense of within us is divine potential of fire spark, Mm -hmm. and so we have to respect one another as a sort of divinity. So the idea that all is unity and even what you see, the ugliness of what you see as divinity It's very strange because I remember as a child being attacked by a madman. Mm -hmm. I was about 15 years old and walking along the sidewalk and this naked 
very dirty, smelly, human male, grunting like a sort of dog. He was actually on all fours, jumped up at me out of the gutter and absolutely terrified me and started grunting and all over me. And it was very, very scary. And the friend that was with me kicked him off, which is a horrible way of treating a human being to kick them off you and fight them off a little 15-year-old child. But then, this was what was the extraordinary thing, after that, several people in the crowd that had seen this started running up to me in order to touch me because I had been touched by holiness. So I was double terrified now with people coming up and sort of touching me as a holy object because I had been, Mm. although I hadn't been raped, but I had been abused and assaulted by this horrible creature. But Mm -hmm. this madness, insanity is next to godliness. Right. Carol, I just want to add one more thing to that. And you could explain some of this to our listeners. I remember some footage that you guys shot over in India, Kumbh Mela, seeing these so-called holy men, really insane in terms of their actions. They're following elephants and they're picking up the elephant dung and eating and wiping it across their body. Now, what's with that? Well, you see, excrement, I know it sounds revolting to us, but that is considered holy. Feces is holiness because it does come from the body of deities that are, whether they be cows or elephants, are in a sense holy. Now, what you've got to understand with Hinduism is it's a religion of rituals. So them wiping themselves are rituals very much like, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful in this, but I was raised a Roman Catholic. And I remember when we walked into church, we put our hands into a vessel at the side of the doorway that had what was called holy water in it. And walking into the church, we put our fingers in the holy water and then crossed ourselves to cleanse ourselves and bring us into a sort of ritual, if you will, a cleansing ritual in order to be able to walk into the church in a cleansed state. So that is very, very similar to the pagan Mm -hmm. ritualistic coverings or wiping off the dust, like a lot of the the people that you were talking about with the crowds that were following Mm -hmm. Guru or the God-man, the man who had believed to have become enlightened, who had found himself to be divinity, enlightened divinity, who had realized himself as a God-man. The very dust, the dirt on the ground that he walked on was what his followers smeared on their own foreheads and bodies to cleanse themselves just like other followers I saw actually catching the urine of the God-man or the guru, the enlightened master, and drinking it because that supposedly purified their insides, realizing that they see all of that as divinity. Now, Carol, at the beginning, you said yoga is Hinduism. Without yoga, there is no Hinduism. Without Hinduism, there is no yoga. Now, I want to pin down Hinduism. Obviously, we don't have a lot of time, but let's just talk about some of the basic beliefs. We addressed some of the manifestations, some of the so-called fruit or really unfruitfulness of Hinduism. But what about some of its basic beliefs? You mentioned, well, reincarnation, transmigration. Uh, Explain that a little bit for our listeners. Yes. Well, you see here again, because all is everything, because all is unity and all is divine and humanity is divine, 
what we've got to do, Tom, if, if you're a Hindu, a believing Hindu, is you've got to change your consciousness to embrace the insanity of these statements. And in order to embrace that, you've got to go through a discipline which is called yoga, which is the practice of changing your mind, transcending the illusion of this world, escaping from what you actually see so that you can become into a sort of transcendent, tranquil, stilled mind. In fact, they call it stilling the mind, be still and know that you're God. But all of these things is a sort of escapism of ugliness or the materialism of the world so that you can come through some realization of an ultimate reality which supersedes everything, which actually you have to go inside of yourself through various disciplines, through breathing, through Mm -hmm. repeating the names of the gods, through doing various poses or asanas or positions of various deities. And all of this is part of yoga, even though the West thinks that there are lots of different yogas, they're actually all different practices, if you will, within the school of Hinduism that you have to transcend everything. So they're just all different aspects, Mm -hmm. like there's karma yoga and bhakti yoga and jhana yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge. These are all different aspects, raja yoga, yoga. different Mm -hmm. aspects of the same thing. So when you ask the question about how does reincarnation fit in with it, Suddenly, that seems to be, oh my gosh, what a strange concept that is. Well, not if you realize that life and death and life and death and life and death is all part of this unity, if you will. And in order to escape death, you have to practice yoga. And it's deeply ingrained in the teachings of yoga. And Lord Krishna says, this is what you have to do in order to escape death. You have to be involved in yoga. In fact, he says that anybody who loving, this is Lord God Krishna, and this is in Bhakti Yoga, that he says that you have to contemplate in me with supreme faith. And I, after attaining me, the great souls do not incur rebirth in this miserable transitory world because they have attained the highest perfection. So those who have entered into me through yoga, through uniting, through yoking, I am soon the deliverer from the ocean of death and transmigration. So it is truly believed that if you practice yoga, you can bypass death. It's actually an exercise to prepare yourself for death, which you go beyond, and you thus shall dwell with me, says Krishna, hereafter. He who serves me through yoga, fixes his mind on me, etc., etc., will experience true liberation. So it's a sort of surrender to this will of confusion that shall liberate you, they call it from all your sins, but they don't believe in the concept of sin because sin is actually the ignorance Mm -hmm. of you not realizing that you're divine. So once you tune into this yoga, which in Hinduism means to yoke, to become one with this consciousness, then the heart within you and the heart within the ultimate goal of life becomes one. Mm-hmm. And there you are with a still so, mind. Carol, to put it in, uh, well, let's spell it out in, in simple terms without oversimplifying. 
uh, yoga's uh, their best shot to not have to go through what's called the uh, wheel of samsara, the wheel of sorrows, this constant reincarnation or transmigration where you've got to reach perfection. So yoga would be similar to um, in Islam, uh, you know, the way to get to paradise, the best way according to them, is through jihad, through dying a martyr's death. And supposedly uh, Allah will open the gate for you through that. But back to Hinduism. So you've got a process here. I, I need to perfect myself here in order to reach moksha or that peace or to have a union with God, to really be drawn into God because... Really, God is in everything, but if we don't realize this, you pointed that out earlier, if self-realization doesn't take place, I've got to keep doing it over and over and over again. And what gets in my way? It was something called, well, what's the term? Well, it's the, it's the self. You know, you have to die to self. You have to die to ego. That's basically what the guru or the yogi will tell you or that Lord Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita which, by the way, spells all this out. When people say that you can do yoga without any spiritual connection, within Hinduism, Krishna, who is the originator of jhana yoga, or the yoga of knowledge, argues that you have to let self pass through this body and recognize that nothing that you see out there in the material world really exists. It's really an illusion. So, I mean, I remember when I was involved in yoga before it was even called the New Age, Tom, because subsequently after that, as these things all morph into other things, it sort of started becoming the New Age, and now it's become a sort of come into Christianity and merged mm -hmm. and become a type of new Christian exercise. But the idea of this spiritual exercise, it was so confusing because you had to keep on trying to die to ego and self, and yet you were consumed by self, the very fact that you had to go into yourself imagining, kind of going through self-hypnosis and igniting or lighting up this coiled cobra, this kundalini, as it's known in Hinduism, this power that lays within you that can awaken psychic energies so that you can come up into this enlightened state. Well, Carol, it's incredibly not only confusing, it's contradictory. You see, if you're dying to self, what's the goal of dying to self? It's self-deification. It's to become God. You're moving to ultimate self. Self-realization is that you're God. So there's the contradiction. And Carol, the aspect of uh, karma, that if I do something on this earth, in this plane, and I step on a ant, well, doesn't karma teach that uh, now I have to come back as an ant, which somebody is going to you know, step on me? I mean, it's a reiteration of sin. They wouldn't call it sin, as you mentioned, but it's just, there's no way out of it. Well, the cruelty of it, Tom, is that you don't even know what you've done wrong. So right. it wasn't until I became a Christian and had a personal relationship with a personal God that moved me out of this relationship I had had with a consciousness. Now, remember within Hinduism, even though they call it God, it's really not God. It's an impersonal consciousness because mm -hmm. it's a force that is everywhere. It's a life force that is in the trees, in the birds, in the cow, in the monkey, in me. So what knits us all together is this breath or this 
life force that it's called, which is an impersonal cosmic energy. Well, then I'm suddenly accused if I do walk on an ant, which your illustration, how do I even know that I've done that? And I'm trying to blend and not be a person, but now I've got to take a personal atonement for something that I personally did on walking on an ant. So it becomes extremely confusing, and it also makes a very cruel mockery of the character of God, because it's a God that really doesn't care for the individual in Hinduism. It's just, it's a cruelty, because all these spirit beings, which is ultimately what these 330 million gods are all about, spirits out there. Spirits are very cruel and play mind games with you all the time. We've got about four minutes left in this this segment, but Carol, I, I remember you telling my kids that yoga is not for health, but for dying. I mean, you know, I've got my kids sitting at the table. They're all in their early 20s. And you told them about your life in India. And I remember you saying that yoga was only practiced by elderly people. And that blew them away. Now explain the dying aspect of yoga for for our listeners. Well, there again, within Hinduism, I mean, it's perfectly understood that young children are, are you know, that's their cycle. We've got parents, that then take responsibility for their children and then they're working, providing for their families. And then the next stage of life is the grandparents that are looking after life in general. There's three stages before the fourth stage where the elderly person then goes into an ashram, which is a sort of monastery or it's a place where the guru lives or the enlightened master. Mm -hmm. And by the way, almost every family in India, a good Hindu family will have a guru that they follow in a school of his thinking that they will be connected to. So when the elderly person goes to his ashram, that person has basically decided that now now they've got to seriously get into the disciplines of yoga to be able to prepare for this cycle of reincarnation and hopefully be able to stop it and not return as something awful that, you know, a cockroach or a rat, which they don't really want to be. They want to come back as something better, but they would prefer not to come back as anything at all if they can be enlightened, which, of course, they never have the assurance of. Mm -hmm. So then you go into the ashram, you learn yoga, and you learn to control all your emotions. You learn how to breathe less, be emotionally involved less, eat less, be motionless with your postures, with your yoga postures, and basically just start winding down under the discipline of a God-man to help you prepare for death. Mm-hmm. That's the antithesis of yoga here here in the West. Now, we're going to get to that, the Lord willing, in, in our next program. But, Carol, I've, we've got about a, about a minute and a half here. You mentioned kundalini yoga. Just give us a brief definition of that. Well, it's believed that within all of us, I mean, I think we've got something like 80,000 psychic spots and energies and central networking systems in our psychic chakras. And these are wheels or psychic wheels that go from the bottom of the spine up to what the Hindu would believe is the third eye of wisdom between one's eyebrows in the middle of one's forehead. And then there's a chakra even above that, which is when you attain enlightenment. But the idea is that there is a snake or a cobra, a kundalini, coiled at the bottom of one's spine, asleep and waiting to be woken up through yoga disciplines of your mind going way down 
to the bottom chakra and waking the snake up so that the snake will come up the spine to ultimately, and the snake is seen as a male, as Shiva, um, that will ultimately come up to the third eye and have union with the goddess, the feminine idea in the third eye to eventually bring this cosmic revelation, which becomes very sexual in, in a yoga called Tantra, Kundalini yoga, Tantra yoga. But the idea is fusion with a male and female psychically in the third eye, which brings across this incredible cosmic realization that we are one with the cosmic universe. Mm -hmm. So it's about waking up this cobra, this kundalini, the serpent power, which is seen as female wisdom, waking this up so that we can become God, you know, yeah. so the cobra, uh, you see it in all, I mean, growing up in India, I saw the cobra above Shiva, Shakti, there's a cobra coiled around the neck of Krishna. I mean, the snake power is the very essence. The gods are sitting on the snake and the cobra is fanned over the head of the gods. And this is what has to be woken up in each of us through mm -hmm. yogic uh, exercises. Carol, we're out of time for, for this, uh, this session, but uh, in our next installment, I want, well, first of all, I wanted our listeners to get an understanding from you about Hinduism and about yoga. And now the question is, how could this possibly come into the church? And I'm talking about the evangelical church. And how how could anybody imagine, based on what we've said, and, you know, you lived in India, you practiced Hinduism for part of your life, and how could anybody in the West accept the very things that we describe, the fruits of this religion? How could it come into the West, but more incredible, how could it come into evangelical Christianity? They're not only practicing it, but they're doing it in their churches. Am, am I pushing the envelope here? Would you say that's an well, evaluation? I, the thing is, it's how it's, it's been marketed. You see, even though most people would, I, I mean, you and I have now talked about it being rooted in Eastern philosophy, the point is it's very, very successfully marketed in the West, and by the way, even in India now, interestingly enough, a lot of women are doing it who would not call themselves Hindus and cannot see the connection with yoga practice. I know it sounds confusing, but it has been so incredibly successfully marketed as a supposedly scientifically proven status, if one wants to say it. It's been said that it's beneficial for healthcare and mental well-being. You know, it's being offered in 80% of health clubs all over the world, I would say. I mean, definitely in America, promoted as a body toner, a flexibility exercise, offered in medical and business programs. It comes in as a steadier of the mind. It calms the emotions. It's supposedly said to um, relax away stresses. So it's very easy to see how this has come into corporations practiced in IBM, AT&T, Nike, HBO, Forbes, Apple. I mean, it's incredible that the corporate yoga boom has taken this because many employers see that their employees would be more productive mm -hmm. if they were involved in some kind of exercise on the premises. And so these, what we see as religiously connected 
it's come in as scientific and right. proven in that. And so it's in schools, young children are involved in it. It's gone into prisons. It's in campuses, all sorts of places, and children's centers, juvenile facilities, prison areas. They're all learning this yoga philosophy, and it's not being called religious. And I remember, Tom, when I was involved in it, I did not realize that it was religious. I did not see that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I thought it was, but the night that I became a Christian and they said, how long have you been a, a Christian? I said, all my life. And at the time I was practicing yoga, I was involved in drugs, I was involved in partying and promiscuity, and yet I truly thought I was a Christian because I had been raised in a Roman Catholic background. That's what I called myself. Mm -hmm. and, and yet here I was practicing a philosophy that is at complete opposites to a biblical Christianity. But I think what's happening here is that a lot of Christians do not understand the Bible. The Bible has been left out of churches and in our teaching. I certainly was biblically illiterate because the moment I started reading the Bible, I could see that an exercise that was trying to bypass death was completely irrelevant which, of course, what yoga is, it tries to bypass reincarnation and the wages of sin is death, that you can work out your own salvation through this yogic discipline. Once you read the Bible, you realize that you don't need to do that because Jesus Christ has brought us to life and took the penalty of death on himself for us. So it's, I think, a huge part of biblical illiteracy. And also, when I was practicing it, I liked the idea of an impersonal, universal energy that was very loving and kind and absorbed um, all this sort of wickedness of me, which I didn't realize I was even mm -hmm. a sinner. You know, Carol, I'm in my uh, late 60s. Well, I go back to my youth in a, a small town in southern Ohio. And as a teenager, I can remember... One of the places where we would congregate, just to use their athletic facilities, was the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. <laughs> Some people don't even know that's what YMCA stands for anymore. Shows you how far that's gone. But that was the only place, certainly in our community, and I would bet in many other communities, that was the only place where you could find yoga. And it was taught. No, I'm talking about back in the uh, mid-50s and the 60s. Absolutely incredible. Right. But now we've got that in places where the Bible is not allowed to be taught. The Bible has been thrown out of the classroom as being religious, and yet yoga is encouraged to be taught to children not identified as a religion. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the very, very clever things in its marketing way back in the 60s, the very time that uh, you were talking about when John Lennon of the Beatles fame, because it was at that time when, uh, you know, the Beatles right. um, in the 60s were instrumental in promoting um, transcendental meditation and yoga. Well, Carol, take us, for our listeners, give us a brief uh, scenario of that development. Now, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the, the guru to the Beatles, you know, he was a missionary. We're going to talk about that in, in a bit. But he was a Hindu missionary to bring Hinduism and yoga to the West. Actually, that was the vehicle, yoga. But he started off with something called the spiritual regeneration movement. Absolutely. How did that go over? And it was accepted. It was understood. Yoga 
was accepted as Hindu-based and transcendental meditation proudly honored its Hindu roots and called itself the spiritual regeneration movement, as you said. But when it did bring some controversy as the Beatles brought it into the public forum, if you will, and it was at that point that Maharishi presented it as a science. It was called the science of creative intelligence. Right. Changed from TM to the science of creative intelligence because that being a science was much more understandable or much more acceptable, I should say. Right. And there's Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in part of his marketing campaign embraced the Beatles in India, in Wales, actually, and then took a bunch of celebrities from Hollywood to Rishikesh in India, where all these celebrities were taught yoga consciousness. And then, of course, that was spewed out through the media to bring it back into the fans Mm -hmm. who, and I was one of them, because the Beatles were certainly my heroes at the time. And the Beatles acknowledged as they got more fame and money that they started realizing that they had a personal spiritual hunger and they started mm-hmm. to look for answers. And all four of them went off with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to Rishikesh. But at that time, John Lennon, who is the spokesperson for the Beatles, now this is, I think, where an incredible piece of marketing came in. He told the world press that we're going to go to India to study transcendental meditation properly. So we have to go back to India to get the real roots. We want to learn properly so we can propagate it and sell the whole idea to everyone. This is how we plan to use our power now. They have always called us leaders of youth, and we believe that this is a good way to give youth a lead. Mm -hmm. Here he says it. It needn't be religion if people don't want to connect it with religion. It's all in the mind, a way to calm down tensions, strengthen understanding, and make people more relaxed. But Carol, you know, Hinduism has the largest missionary organization in the world. So it's not just Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And certainly, it was a great boon to this missionary effort to bring the Beatles on board. The organization is called the Vishnu Hindu Parishad. Vishnu Hindu Parishad, yes. That was formed in January 19. 19- 79, and in fact, we went out to India to film for our Gods of the New Age soon after that and found the very paperwork, the articles, the magazines that showed that this was a missionary organization. In fact, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad sponsored the Second World Congress on Hinduism in Allahabad, where we went to the Kumbh Mela in Allahabad. Mm-hmm. And that is an absolutely huge huge, 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 huge festival that comes every seven years, every 14 years for the grand festival. There were, oh, 60, 70, 80,000 delegates from around the world. Mm-hmm. And there at that time, I remember the paperwork is saying that one of the delegates said, our mission in the West has been crowned with fantastic success. Hinduism is becoming the dominant world religion, and the end of Christianity has come near. Mm-hmm. Now, Carol, for our listeners again, can you think of some of these more famous missionaries from the East who have really infected Hollywood? And then I want you to end up, after you give us a few names, I want you to end up here in Oregon. As a matter of fact, oh, about 120 miles from uh, where we're recording this, at least on our side. So uh, who, who were some of these gurus? As we've 
said, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi mm-hmm. was a perpetuator of transcendental meditation. And then we had this huge exodus from India of hundreds and hundreds of godmen, gurus, enlightened masters that came in to perpetuate or to spread their different types of yoga. Well, actually, there was the Woodstock Festival where Swami Sachidananda who is the founder of Integral Yoga, led hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hippies through the Om Mantra. Now, mantra is a repetitive prayer that is integral in altering the states of consciousness for yoga, which, as I mentioned in the last program, that it's a mind-altering discipline that can merge body and mind. And one of the things is that you're given a mantra or the name of a deity, or a vibrational cosmic deity divine sound, which you have to repeat again and again. And here we had Swami Sachidananda telling these thousands to repeat Aum. So, you know, that was part of it. That was the Woodstock aspect. And then we've got all these various different uh, missionaries, like the Hare Krishna, Prabhupada had the Hare Krishna. There again, that's a mantra, Hare Hare Rama Rama. Mm-hmm. which is another prayer force, and he perpetuated that in the 60s where you had the Hare Krishna disciples wearing orange bald heads, hitting their cymbals and drums and mm-hmm. coming down the streets converting people. So, Carol, what about the sannyasins, the uh, uh, Rajneesh? Uh, that's, that's what I was... Uh... Yeah, that was the effect. That's the uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. I went to his ashram or his holy place, his monastery in Pune in India, and then he bought several hundreds of acres in not far, well, in Oregon, not far from you, in Antelope, actually. Mm-hmm. And now a sannyasin, there again, these words have become sort of everyday language here, but these are disciples. In India, it's a very holy position to be a sannyasin, a disciple of a guru or a bhagwan, mm-hmm. which, by the way, means God. Right. So when you get these people that call themselves Sri, Bhagwan, Rajneesh, which means little king. I mean, these are arrogant titles for mere mortals. But they're not, in their view, they're not mere mortals. They're gods. They're now, gods. I, you know, I remember, I remember at the ashram, at least the, there was a sign out in front, leave your sandals and your mind at the door. Yes. But this was drug-oriented, drug-related, and so on. And that was your experience. That's what you found up at you know, the Rajneesh Purim up in Antelope. Well, and you see another interesting thing that happened in the 60s, 70s, where there are a lot of people that got strung out on drugs realized that they could actually have the same altered states of consciousness through yoga practice or through mind-altering yoga techniques where you could shift. You had this paradigm shift to get into nothingness, and you didn't have to do it through drugs. So even though in India, drugs sometimes is part of these ceremonies and festivals, that's what we saw at the Kumela, where the heavy-duty tantric disciples mess their minds up mm-hmm. with drugs and become one with God through drug consciousness, which, of course, is considered mm-hmm. deity consciousness as well. But in the West, I think you'll find with this new type of yoga that's coming, where people are so conscious about healthy bodies and healthy They think, I mean, the way that yoga has been packaged here is as a health exercise and a body exercise for nimble, supple bodies and to do all sorts of healthy aspects. But within Hinduism, it's got to be understood that the body and the mind are one and the same. 
So you cannot make the body healthy without connecting the mind to Shakti power, because the Kundalini, the snake is Shakti, the great mother goddess, the living energy that is within the body. This has got to be pushed. The subtle, more psychic has to be pushed up, which is much more important than in Hinduism than the materialism of the body. So while yoga is being peddled as a body making better health care thing within Hinduism, it's a vehicle to get the individual to tune into psychic abilities and become mystics, but even more dangerous to actually become vessels for supernatural spiritual indwelling. Carol, so based on all that you've said, what then of so-called Christian yoga? And there's a lot out there, right? Very, very, very troubling it's enhancing your body to become a container of the spirit world, which is in complete opposition to biblical faith. Well, people say, of course, this is a spirituality. You know, I, I'm moving into a, a higher spirituality only. I'm applying Jesus to it and I'm applying the Bible to it and so on. Well, come on. If you're a Christian, wouldn't you be a follower of Jesus? Wouldn't you be in submission to his teachings and to his instructions? Where did Jesus ever practice this? Where did he ever promote this? Where is this in the Bible? So very basically, you've got a real problem here. And if you bring it back to what we mentioned in our program last week, it's Hinduism. It's pure Hinduism. And it's antithetical to biblical Christianity. So how a person, you know, reconciles that with what he or she is doing, to me, is, is incredible. It is very confusing. And I think the confusion comes because Christians have become biblically illiterate. They're not depending on the authority of Scripture and walking in faith. Rather, they're walking in feelings and a mysticism that really does bring um, incredible emotional feelings. I mean, I remember when I was involved in yoga, the spiritual euphoria that I was involved in was absolutely magical in a sense because I was listening to doctrines of demons, but I didn't know I was listening to doctrines of demons until I became biblically literate and, and then was able to read that, I was involved with lying spirits who were giving me great experiences and sensations. And these mere physical movements are part of the oneness of the individual getting into connection with all of this. So for a Christian, you know, it's almost like saying, well, the baptism in Christianity is just an underwater exercise. No, it's not. Baptism is a very important part of a biblical aspect of Christianity, and it can't be just reduced to an mm -hmm. underwater exercise. I know that's a, a poor sort of blending of things. Now, Carol, we got about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Carol, I've got to talk about your DVD, uh, Yoga Uncoiled. I, couldn't, I can't recommend it highly enough. For those who are concerned about this, they need to get that DVD. And, Carol, thank you so much. For being with us, I think we've hopefully informed people. We've laid out some information, but they have to decide whether this is biblical or not. Jesus said to the woman at the well, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's our heart for everybody out there.
Wow, that is such a powerful interview. And there's just so many pieces of it to meditate on. You know, the one part that really stood out to me was where she paralleled baptism, like how we know how spiritual baptism is. Right. But it's just swimming. Yeah. Just to say, oh, I'm just, it's just the same as going out for a little swim in the lake, you yeah. know? No. So trying to separate yoga from Hinduism is like trying to separate baptism from Christianity. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then in Yoga Uncoiled, Carol, she goes and talks to the gurus and others in India. Right. And asks them, hey, can you separate yoga from Hinduism? They're like, no way. Right. Yoga is Hinduism. Yeah. And they're like, can you do the poses without actually be practicing the spiritual things? No. There's a hundred percent connection between all the poses and the spiritual entities that they're worshiping. That's right. And she shared in this interview actual doctrines of demons in the Bhagavad Gita from Krishna and these demon gods where they're saying yoga is Hinduism. Mm. Yoga is the way that you achieve enlightenment. You can't separate it. So yoga means yoked. Is Mm. that interesting? Yeah. The word yoga means yoked. So are we as believers supposed to be yoked to darkness? No. Or are we supposed to expose them? Ephesians 5.11. Have Mm. nothing to do with the deceitful deeds of darkness, which is what Hinduism is, but expose it. Right. Not be yoked to it. The Bible says we're not to be yoked with unbelievers. Right. And so we're definitely not supposed to be yoked with the devil. And the demons. (sighs) Right. Demons, yeah. Who are we supposed to be yoked to? The Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus only. Matthew 11, 29 to 30 says, take my yoke upon you. Yes. I think that's the only yoke we're supposed to take upon us. Right. That's right. Right. And he's not talking about yoga. No. Okay. So his yoke is easy. His burden is light. You'll find rest for your soul. Mm. You don't find any rest for the soul in yoga. I think it's interesting the connection between yoga and serpent power. Mm. I mean, that should tell you all you need to know. Yeah. So, and I don't think anyone who's naming the name of the Lord and participating in this, I don't think they would invite deadly serpents inside their house and roll out a yoga mat and do a workout with them. No way. You know, I don't think they would do that. I don't think so. A deadly serpent needs a a shotgun, not a yoga mat. Right. Right? Yeah, definitely. What does that remind you of? Well, we had a couple of them a few days ago that we shot. We still have one. And we still have a big one. We just got the babies. In our pond. We have a water moccasin in our pond. Or it's a cotton mouth. A cotton mouth Mm -hmm. slash water moccasin. Same thing, right? That's right. But we have one of those in our pond that's very close to our house. So um, we were down by the pond the other day, and I noticed the first little one. Mm -hmm. I saw one of the babies of the big water moccasin, and Kevin brought me the gun because I had my eye on it, and I shot that one, Yeah, killed it. And then Kevin shot the next one and uh, killed that one. But we we didn't run down there and, and pick it up and take it to to bed like a stuffed animal. No, definitely and cuddle, not. And cuddle around with it. We didn't try to waken it no, next no. to us. We tried to put it to sleep yeah, permanently. We, we put that thing to sleep. So That's right. I was talking with the brothers about that, the cotton mouth. Mm. And I told them I renamed the cotton mouth to the shotgun mouth. Okay. I think it's a better name for it. How's that? Well, that's what he needs. Right. <laughs> I'm not using cotton on him. <laughs> 
right, baby? <laughs> oh my goodness, Come you're on. funny. But you know when they open their mouth, it's white. I know. That's why they call it that. That's why. That's where he needs the shotgun shell. <laughs> I'm just telling you, this is okay to be angry at yeah. a deadly serpent. Right. We, I mean, we have little children that play around the water and yeah. all that. So we're definitely being very, very cautious and getting rid, exterminating these things. So just apply that spiritually, dear. There is a deadly serpent that's after everybody. Yeah. And so I have a righteous anger against that. Yeah, me too. Against that evil one. Mm. And so, you know, we should repel that. It's like the Lord tells us to resist the devil. Yeah. He doesn't tell us to cuddle up to it. Right. Having anything to do with yoga, I think of it like baiting serpents to my house. Mm. Like I wouldn't bait that cotton mouth, put bait out and try to get them to come to my house. No, no way. I would resist it. And you know, the Bible says all the way back in Genesis 3, okay, when the judgment came upon the serpent, Mm. what did God say? He was going to put enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman was going to be the Messiah, okay? And all the Messiah's offspring, which would be us. Mm. So we are supposed to be at enmity with the enemy. Yes. Not unity with the enemy. Not yoked with the enemy. Right. Enmity. That means resistance. Yeah, definitely. So that's what we need to do with this. And, you know, I'm passionate about these things because, you know, we're told to to hate evil. Mm. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And there is an evil one that's after people. Yes. I'm looking forward to Romans 16, 20. It says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. (sighs) I'm looking forward to that. And then Revelation chapter 20 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Satan means adversary. Okay. Mm. And bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Mm. But then the Lord's going to put him in Gehenna, the lake of fire. Yes. And so I guarantee you during the thousand years, no one's going to be studying yoga. No. When the Lord's reigning here on earth. No way. And the Lord Jesus Christ isn't going to be given yoga classes. No. So let's get rid of it now. Amen. 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 Well, we just want to thank all of our listeners for joining us again for another episode of Spirit of Adoption Radio. And thank you for hanging in there with us to cover this topic that is something that's very close to our heart. Um, So we're really thankful that you've hung in there to cover this with us. And we just want to remind you that if you haven't done so, please visit our website, SoarNaturals.com, where you can find some really wonderful immune-boosting health supplements that will not do your body any harm, only good. And um, if you visit that website, you can use code SOAR15 for 15% off your order. Amen. And remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. He has everything under control. So look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Amen. 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 And may the Lord bless you as you seek him today. Maranatha. Thanks for listening to Spirit of Adoption Radio. You can reach us through our website, adoptionairfare.com. Also, please subscribe and leave us a review on the listening platform of your choice. Lord willing, we'll see you next time. Maranatha. Maranatha.